Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having, be having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can grab a seat. I can't help but comment that, like so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, here we are gathered, a little bit uncomfortable, with a tinge of risk, yet eager to be here and eager to hear from God. So I commend you for your perseverance this morning. Here's a question I think about a lot working at a church, and I hope that we're all thinking about a good bit, and it's this, what makes for a compelling gospel witness? So like right now in 2021, how can we be a compelling gospel witness to the world around us? And I think that's a massively important question and one we should really always be wrestling with as a church. And the conversation usually centers around methods. What are the best ways to share our faith? And methods change. For example, there used to be a time not too long ago when knocking on doors was a normal part of our culture. And now it's a little creepy, if we're honest, right? And people think you're a Jehovah's Witness if you knock on the door. And so we've had to adapt. We've had to adapt. We've had to think of new ways of engaging people. We've had to update our methods to the cultural moment. So instead of knocking on doors, we now throw events or we use common interest groups built around hobbies or felt needs. 
And for the younger generations, instead of, you know, passing out tracks to people, we have to wrestle with the best way of using the internet or even social media. So should Nigel and I start a TikTok ministry to better reach students? Maybe. It's a possibility. Probably not. Uh, The point is, methods change. That's okay. We don't have to be overly dogmatic about methods. There's a lot of methods that are possible. But we do need to be careful that we build our methods on, in such ways that they correctly display the message. I was at a church one time in Northern Ireland, and they had a method of hiding money and gift cards and envelopes under the seats at random to get people to come. And it worked. And so if you look under your seat, no, I'm just kidding. It's not there. Uh, and so the question is, should we do that? Should we do that? And the answer is a resounding no, we should not do that. It's an incongruent me- message that doesn't testify to the method. Or switch those. It's an incongruent method that doesn't point back to the message. So a $25 Applebee's gift card is not a very good lead-in to saying, take up your cross and follow Jesus to the grave. It doesn't work. It will get people to show up, sure, but it doesn't line up with the message of the gospel. And so as we are thinking about what makes for a compelling gospel witness, we're looking for ways to share our faith that are both culturally relevant and flow from the gospel message. Our actions need to reinforce the story that our mouth tells. And this is why it's so great to walk through the book of Acts as a church. Acts is full of these case studies of conversion. And really no place more than right here in Acts chapter 16. And so by looking carefully at how the gospel advances in the city of Philippi a long time ago, I think God wants to show us this morning ways for us to be compelling witnesses where he has us. So let me pray for our time this morning. Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to gather here freely. We pray, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts by your spirit the truth from your word, Lord, and that it would change us, it would change our hearts, it would change our actions. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, even though my words are small, that your glory would shine through. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. So Luke tells us three stories of conversion in Philippi. And all, of all the converts that would have formed this early church in this big city, Luke chooses these three on purpose. So first, as we looked at Matt last week with Pastor Manfred, he tells us about a woman named Lydia. And then he tells us the story of a slave girl being saved out of demonic oppression and societal exploitation. And then he tells us the story of a Philippian jailer. And you have to ask the question, why did he pick these three? And I think there are several reasons. The first reason I want to highlight is that he was trying to show us the nature of this new kingdom, that it is an upside-down kingdom. And this is a quote that Pastor Manfred shared last week that I want to reiterate, but there's an ancient Jewish prayer that Paul would have heard called the Three Blessings, and it went like this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman, oops, 
a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And yet, here we are, and we see the beginning of the church in Philippi, founded with a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. In fact, just one chapter later, a mob will accuse Paul and Silas of being the men who have turned the world upside down. And that is exactly what the gospel has done and continues to do. It turns our categories of people upside down. Jesus said that the last will be first and the first will be last. And throughout history, the gospel has done just that. In the second century, there's a Greek writer named Celsus who famously criticized Christianity for being a religion of slaves and women, not worthy of respect from a Greek male like himself. And it didn't stop with him. Throughout history, you can read over and over again the critiques of Christianity. Karl Marx said it's the opiate of the masses. Frederick Nietzsche said it's the religion of the weak-minded. Richard Dawkins calls it the great cop-out. And I was just having a conversation a few weeks ago with someone who was pointing out to me that Christian faith correlates inversely with IQ. So he's calling me stupid with like fancy words. Uh, and so the chorus goes on, right? And the thing about it is that Jesus loved this about, about the gospel. He loved how the Father was flipping expectations and building this new kingdom. Listen to Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Luke writes, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And similarly, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians, he says, Consider your, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so we see by these three converts that God loves to build upside-down kingdoms. So that's the first reason. I think the next reason is that Luke is showing us the unique diversity of the early church, where people from all sorts of backgrounds come together to make this motley crew of faith in Philippi. And if you look at these three converts, they really couldn't have been more different. So first, let's take Lydia. What do we know about Lydia? Well, we know she's wealthy. She owns her own home. She has her own business. She deals in the trade of purple clothing, which was the most expensive color of dye to get. We know she's Asian, perhaps of Middle Eastern ethnicity. We know she's single. We know she's a God-fearer, which means she was connected with the Jewish faith. And in total contrast to her, we have this unnamed slave girl who is a victim of untold oppression and trauma, and yet redeemed by the power of the gospel. She was poor. She had nothing to offer. She had no family to take care of her. And yet, here she is, part of the early church movement in Philippi. And then you have this jailer. He's probably ex-military, because most jailers were. He's clearly a hardened person, based on how he goes above and beyond and making Paul and Silas miserable. He probably even gives them especially rough treatment because they are Jews, and maybe he doesn't like Jews. 
His instructions were simple. They just keep him safe overnight in jail. But what he does is he takes him to the nastiest part of the prison, the inner dungeon, and he puts their legs up in the stocks, which was a device that would hold your feet in the air this far apart all night. So you can't roll over. You can't get off your freshly whipped back if you're Paul and Silas, unable to be comfortable, unable to sleep. And yet even this hardened man is broken down by the power of the gospel and joins this house church. So to put it in our context here at Calvary, you imagine as Paul leaves, there's a house church that meets at Lydia's beautiful house in Oak Park. And the founding members are Lydia, who's a single professional woman who owns a boutique clothing company and is doing quite well for herself, alongside a young girl who grew up exploited and was just rescued from human trafficking, and a prison guard who works at the Cook County Jail who's got to go get some tattoos removed now that he's a Christian because of how offensive they are. It's incredible the kind of people that the gospel brings together, and Luke is trying to show us that. But I think the last reason he picks these three, and the main reason we're going to focus on this morning, is he wants to show us the different ways that the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness of the world around us. He wants to show us the different ways the light of the gospel breaks in to the world around us. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells us that we are the light of the world. And then he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And on the same vein, Peter writes in 1 Peter that our calling is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you and me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think these, what these stories show us are three different ways that the light of the gospel can break in to the darkness of the world around us. So let's take Lydia. For Lydia, all she needed was to hear. She needed the light of the gospel to go into the darkness of her understanding. And the Lord had already done all the work in advance. Lydia is like that coworker who walks up to you and says, hey, I've really been wrestling with the guilt of my sin. Can you tell me more about Jesus? You're like, yes. Um, if you handed Lydia a tract, she would say, do you have any more? You know, she would take them all. This is Lydia. And the Lydias of our culture are people who have that gospel foundation. They know what we're talking about when we start talking about Jesus. They feel the weight of their sin. They believe in God. Perhaps they grew up going to church and they walked away, but they're willing to come back. And I think that many of the methods of the last 100 years of Christian witness in North America was aimed at the Lydias. So tent revivals or door knocking or Gideon Bibles in the hotel room or inviting people to come back to church. These are all wonderful, and there are many Lydias out there still who need to hear the simple message that Jesus saves and to be invited into our church family. Because the gospel can radically change the course of someone like that, and it's up to us to share the message. Honestly, one way, if you want to do ministry to some Lydias around us, is one way you could do that is by working with our children here at Calvary. You may get to be part of that moment where the gospel clicks for a child for the first time, and you could do that by helping out in Awana or on our Sunday morning children's ministry programming. But you may have noticed that there aren't a whole lot of Lydia's around here in Oak Park. 
And I think the next two converts we're going to look at have a lot more in common with our situation. is that they have significant barriers to the gospel in their own lives. So let's look at the slave girl next. The interesting thing about the slave girl is that she already knew something about the gospel, but it wasn't helping her. The text says that she followed them around for days and the demonic presence in her was calling out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She knows it, but she's so oppressed by demonic and societal forces that she couldn't hear the message. She needed more than proclamation. She needed deliverance. She needed the gospel to come and rescue her. It reminds us of the story of Jesus and the demon-possessed man named Legion. And when, when Jesus arrives to set the man free, the man yells out, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So here's a guy who knows Jesus is the son of God, but he was still trapped. And then Jesus cast the demons out, and the man was freed up to believe and then be a witness for Jesus in his hometown. And Lydia needed, Lydia needed to hear the good news, but the slave girl needed the good news to come and get her out of there, right? So she could fully hear it. And this is where being light in the darkness gets a lot harder, I think. It's much easier to reach the Lydias around us than it is to reach the slave girls around us. It's hard to reach people who are trapped in cycles of oppression or who are enslaved. It's hard to reach an addict, honestly. It's hard even for me to reach a teenager who's like totally consumed with media and video games. It's like you, you say words and they don't hear you. It's kind of glazed over, right? And it just feels like the words don't get through. And I think what we're seeing here is that addictions and abuse and oppression and exploitation can build walls around someone's head and heart that, to where they're in such a dark place that they can barely hear you. They can barely hear you. And I think Satan uses all sorts of systems to trap people away from gospel redemption. And part of the church's mission is not only proclamation, but alongside of it, gospel rescue. So for Lydia, being a light in the darkness meant telling her. But for the slave girl, being a light in the darkness meant helping her. So finally, let's look at the jailer. Let's look at the jailer. So the jailer wasn't like the slave girl. He was a middle-class, blue-collar guy. He had a decent job, and he had zero interest in the weird religion of these Jewish men. He did not need rescuing, thank you very much. At least as far as he was concerned, he didn't want to hear it. Maybe you know people like this. And the only way that the gospel was going to impact him was if he saw it. He had to see it. And I think there's two ways that he saw something that he couldn't explain that night. He encountered two powerful displays of the gospel. The first one was that he heard Paul and Silas singing hymns in the darkness, and he didn't have a category for that. He knew they were miserable. In fact, he had worked hard to make them miserable. He had done a good job. And yet here they were singing songs of of hope in God. They probably were singing some of the Psalms, maybe some new contemporary Jesus songs that had been written a couple decades before. And it was such a powerful moment in that prison that the other prisoners remained with Paul and Silas when the doors swing open. They wanted to see what these guys were about. You can tell it had an impact. And Paul and, Paul and Silas were singing in the midst of their pain 
and hardship in a way that it was a declaration of hope against the world and the evil of the world. They weren't singing because they were happy. They weren't singing because they were happy. They were singing in a way to testify back to the powers of darkness that their hope was outside of what the world can offer. And I think the church has a long tradition of singing these songs of gospel resistance. And personally, I've watched many senior adults over the years be witnesses to the world as they wrestle with a terminal illness. I've watched how singing the truths of God for them can be an anchor to their soul as they face death. And it's been a real inspiration to me. And I was reminded recently of this same idea and talking with someone about the wrong-headed idea that slave masters were using Christianity to oppress and control slaves in the American South. But the reality is the slaves were the true Christians and they were speaking their faith back to the world as a witness. And the tradition of spirituals that arose from that era were all songs of gospel hope and gospel resistance. That in the cruelty of their circumstances, and slavery, they were the ones with the genuine faith in God, and they were a witness to the world of evil around them. And this is what Paul and Silas were doing. They were singing these songs of hope, and they were being a light in the darkness. But there's one more thing that the jailer didn't have a category for. When the earthquake, earthquake hits, everyone is set free, and they all stay put. And the question is, why? Why are they staying there? And I want to pause here just for a second and point out at that moment the two open doors for Paul and Silas. When the jail door swings open, Paul doesn't just see one door. He sees two open doors. He sees an open door for personal comfort, a way to improve his own life, which is exiting the dungeon, right? But then he sees this other door. And he sees a door of gospel opportunity. And Paul learned this one from Jesus. Paul would later write back to the, to the Philippian church and say, let each one of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, taking the interest of others above your own interest. And then in 2 Corinthians, he writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so Paul, in that moment with the two doors open, he had enough to give away. He had enough in Christ to give, to give away because he was anchoring his life in Jesus. And so Paul was hoping and praying in that moment that the sacrificial grace, the loving of his enemy, might make the gospel shine through even to this jailer. And it did. And here's the crazy thing is that who opened the door? God opened the door, right? So the open door of personal advancement and comfort was given to Paul by God. And yet he chooses this other path, which is a path of gospel opportunity. And Paul made the jailer's problems Paul's own problems. And in that act of grace, the gospel breaks through. And we see the jailer cry out, what must I do to be saved? And so he had heard the words of the gospel in their songs, but it took him seeing the gospel enacted for him to be saved. 
He saw this costly, undeserved love of Paul and Silas towards him, and then he understood the costly and undeserved love of God. In church, we are called to this message. We're not just called to proclaim and to rescue, but also to display the gospel and how we treat the world around us and how we treat our spouses and how we treat our children and how we treat our friends and even how we treat our enemies. That will make for an effective gospel witness to the world around us. So to summarize, we need to be people at Calvary who are proclaiming him who called us out of darkness for the Lydias of the world. We need to be people who are lifting and working to lift people out of oppression and darkness like, they, like Paul and Silas did for the slave girl. And we need to be people who are displaying the gospel in our actions by being light in the darkness. And as we do these things, the world will see the beauty of an upside-down kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we want this for our own lives, Lord, and we know that the strength that it takes to live this kind of faith out comes from abiding in Christ. We pray that we would do that this morning, that we would turn things over to you that are keeping us from your calling in our life, and that we could be people who display the grace of God to the people you put in our lives, Lord. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you yet, Lord, that in seeing the brokenness and the, the hurt of these people in Philippi would find themselves in the story and hear your call to them. Lord, I uh, just pray for myself and our church family. Make us be people who show the kindness and goodness of God to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things.